Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet, the go-to podcast for parents with multiple kids, especially those with twins, triplets, or more, who are navigating the maze of modern family life and personal finance. Whether you're overwhelmed by education or retirement planning, parenting dilemmas, career transitions, or trying to define your purpose and plan, we're here to guide you with empathy, encouragement, and expertise. Hosted by Paul Fenner, founder of Tama Capital, a certified financial planner and parent to four kids, including a set of triplets, our podcast is your ally in the quest for financial peace of mind, proving that money matters, but family comes first. Subscribe now and join our community of empowered parents at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What does comprehensive financial planning even mean? At Tama Capital, it means a family office where lifestyle planning such as retirement, college, portfolio management, tax prep and planning, all are under one umbrella. But it goes beyond numbers. We focus as much on the emotional side of financial planning as we do on the financial side. We get you. We understand your challenges of building a family, business or career, and a healthy life. We are devoted to wealth planning for families like yours because we are you. Learn how our family can help your family by visiting TamaCapital.com. Have you ever thought about a mid-career pivot? Staring down the uncertainty of making a bold decision when a new opportunity arises? Toby Brooks, a professor at Texas Tech University, has made his fair share of career pivots. With a background in athletic training, Toby and his wife crisscrossed the country trying to secure a position with a professional sports team. This transition led Toby to pursue a full-time career in academia. But I think the heart of Toby's story gets back to a common theme of this show, how to deal with life transitions. There's a theme that comes again and again throughout our conversation, it repeats repeatedly, especially for parents. So I encourage you to find that thread. Please enjoy my conversation with Toby Brooks. Toby Brooks, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Paul, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation today and having you on and, and talking about your, your background and a lot of the uh, unique life transitions uh, that you've had. I think uh, one of the underlying themes of you know, my show for the last two and a half years have been these conversations with, with people like you that have gone through multiple life transitions. And I think it's really one of the underestimated uh, things in, in life that we don't, I don't think, give as much credence to, and they happen a whole lot more than people realize. And I think most people think of the big ones like, you know, you know, being a parent, having a baby for the first time, getting married, somebody passing away, maybe a career change. Um, but I feel like I'm going through life transitions every year and raising these uh, triplets plus one, <laughs> one that I have. So, um, let me let me turn it over to you and have you walk our audience uh you know who you are your background and then we'll get into some of those life transitions 
Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm currently a professor at the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in Lubbock, Texas. I've been here for the past 14 years, which is closing in on the longest I've ever lived anywhere. Uh, my background professionally is as an athletic trainer. So early in my career, I was really trying to catch on with a D1 school or an NFL team. And uh, we, I often tell my students this, the first 12 years of marriage, my wife and I had 14 different addresses as we bounced oh. around uh, trying to catch on. Uh, went to undergrad at SIU Carbondale, not far from where I grew up in the Midwest. And uh, then we moved to Arizona where I did my master's and doctorate in teaching and teacher education. And I worked with gymnastics, football, a little bit with baseball. And then from there, uh, kind of bounced back and forth between practicing as an AT and teaching. And uh, really kind of the, the seminal moment for me, my wife and I waited several years to start our family. Uh, she was pursuing her master's degree in counseling, and I was a GA, you know, working 80 hour weeks for uh, pittance. But uh, I finally got my first. I guess it was my second full-time job. I'd gone into academia briefly, but our daughter, Brennan, who is now a junior in college, uh, I was away traveling with football. And when I came home, exhausted, dropped my stuff on the couch, and my little nine-month-old pops up and, and walks over to me. And I'm like, when did this happen? <laughs> and it was kind of this bittersweet kind yeah. of moment of clarity where I thought, how many of these firsts am I going to miss chasing this dream of mine? And it really kind of convicted me in that moment that I, that season of chasing those dreams needed to change. I'm not saying I discarded my dreams for the sake of my family, but uh, I couldn't be the husband and, and the dad that I wanted to be and work 80 hour weeks and travel eight, nine weekends out of the year. It just wasn't going to happen. So uh, that kind of cemented my decision to, to kind of head into the academic space full time and kind of secondary influence as opposed to primary influence. So I try to speak into our students and and try to help them as they pursue those dreams. But uh, that was a real moment of clarity for me. Do you, that's a really interesting point because that's a, that's a topic that comes up. I, I swear like conversation after conversation. And I hate the term work-life balance uh, because I just don't think it exists. There's, there's certain times of your life that work is going to need you more so than your family. And then there's times where your family is going to need you more so than, than work. And I think people, when they think of work-life balance, they think of this, this even parallel teeter-totter and that's just not the case. And, and I, I've actually tried to, to insert the word harmony versus balance into mm -hmm. that, that conversation. Cause I know with, with our situation, with, with my wife, Teresa, and you're know, raising our triplets and our, our plus one, um, there's definitely times in her life that, you know, career is more demanding than, 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 than family because I'm here and then vice versa. And so there's, there's always this juggling act. There's no, there's no balance per se. It's just trying to dial in the right amount of harmony to keep us all sane and, and healthy. Yeah. I think that's really well put. Uh, it just leads to this recurrent, persistent, uh, nagging sense of guilt. Like you're constantly shortchanging one or the other. If you're looking for balance, it's, it's like chasing perfection. Like that is a, a recipe in 
mental health disorder, like the anxiety, the depression that you get from constantly feeling like you're not pouring in a hundred percent. So like when people say marriage is 50, 50, it, uh, it's a hundred, 100, right. work life balance is not that way. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. There are seasons when your work really demands your attention, but I think in our society in American culture, uh, especially specific pockets of it, we really equate success at work with with identity with value with intrinsic like like somehow if if i kill it at work i am elevating who i am in the world's eyes and i think that's kind of a uniquely american thing and it's not always a healthy thing it it does come at the expense of our family but likewise that that, the flip side of that is true I, i i feel sorry for working moms in particular because they are constantly guilted and shamed into feeling like you know, if if they're not this awesome girl boss at work, that they're failing. But likewise, if they're not home cooking meals and homeschooling their children, that somehow they're inadequate. So it, it seems like no matter where you turn, society is more than happy to tell you where you're failing, but not so excited to pat you on the back. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And obviously, this is this is two dads saying the same thing. Like I, I think moms have it so much worse than dads. And obviously there's decades of, of that stereotype being built up. But I I think, especially today with the way that social media is, it's like, it's a human highlight reel of everybody's, you know, uh, greatest, greatest hits. And I think that's really hard for moms because you know, they're, where, where do you strike that harmony? I know, you know, Teresa deals with it, you know, all the time. And it's, I think it's really, Ironically, I was just listening to a podcast um, by Michael Kitsis, uh, who's an industry leader in the financial planning space that I'm in, talking about, I think it was Michael, um, that was talking to one of his, um, the people that he works with that's from Brazil. And she said the same thing. Like when you first introduce yourself to somebody, the first question is, what do you do? And she was like, we we never say that in Brazil. And I think that's, that's, I think, uniquely American as well. And this whole, for better or worse, our identity is tied to what we do, the work that we do, and, and that interaction. That's really, and, and this is going to sound like a plug, it's not intended to, but it, it ties into my podcast is really... Oh, we'll I, get to that. Don't worry. No, I don't, but but <laughs> this concept of identity and whether it's work, I, I, I tend to interview a lot of athletes. That's kind of where the genesis of this came was you get people who have kind of this first season of life where they're a competitive athlete or an artist. You know, you mentioned before the show, your wife was a, a a dancer for an NBA team. Well, that doesn't last for 40 years that ultimately those seasons come to a close. And if your identity is hundred percent tied to that, there's this void that's left and this, this search for significance, that identity question is, is a, a challenging one for people. And it's, it's one that I think we have, we've stigmatized even the conversation like, yeah, you, oh, poor you, you know, you played 10 years in the NFL and now you've got to move on. Oh, that's, that's a challenging mental thing to navigate for people. And and by stigmatizing it and not normalizing it, we really kind of shame people into this, this space of, of not being where they once were. And now also having to carry the shame and the guilt without having anyone to talk to about it. Yeah, one of one of my um that's an interesting point because one of my guests, uh Dr. Amber Selking, um 
I think Amber did her dissertation on for a PhD on the transition NFL players go through from playing to post career. And, you know, if, if that's not one of the biggest life transitions you think of going through, I, I don't know what is. And to your point, yeah, it's like, like people are like, well, how can I feel sorry for you? You just made millions of dollars playing a sport and now you have to go and do something else. Well, there's, there's a lot of mental, I'm assuming mental anxiety buildup with that. You talk about mental health, you know, that's, you know, somebody's got a front row seat to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I experienced that. I worked in the arena league briefly, uh, one season. And from there I took a job, uh, in an industrial setting. So I go from working with professional athletes, granted on a lower level in the NFL to working at a tire plant. It was a wellness and fitness facility in a tire manufacturing facility. And I, I chose it geographically. Like my wife wanted to be closer to home. Uh, the arena <laughs> job was, was a, a seasonal position. So, so I go from, you know, an athlete gets injured and they have an MRI scheduled for the next day to this tire plant where an individual has symptoms of carpal tunnel and they get seen by a physician nine months later. And, and it was really challenged for me as a healthcare provider. It's like, is, is one of these people more valuable in society's eyes than the other? Granted, these aren't even elite level. These are, you know, essentially minor league football players. And I struggled with the challenge, like my worth and my identity was in a business card that had a logo on it that you would recognize and hopefully be impressed by to a tire plant. You know, it it smells like rubber every morning and nobody's there because they dreamed of being there when they were four years old. There was just this sense of resignation. And part of you is like, why did I make this choice? Like, should I, you know, should I pursue, continue to kind of chase down those dreams? And ultimately it's every, you know, everyone has to answer that question for themselves. Um, but it was, it was a short lived time at the tire plant for Brooks. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, I can empathize with you there a little bit. Uh, so, because I, I used to work in a, a rubber plant myself Yeah, <laughs> back in my automotive career, uh-huh. you, know, w- you know, just and this is the thing is like, I usually start with a list of things I'd like to talk to a guest about. And then like probably within the first five minutes, I throw it out because we end up going a different direction. But you know, one of the things I'm really interested in knowing is given your position as a professor, how often do these conversations come up with, with, um, young people, whether they're, you know, in undergrad or potentially grad school, because I think probably this, some of the, these conversations and the lessons that you're trying to to, to talk to these kids about are the same lessons that a 40 year old, um, in a career that doesn't know where to go could, could glean from as well. Yeah. So our program is strictly at the the graduate level. And when I got here close to 14 years ago, uh, I've jumped from an undergrad program to a grad program. And there was a real distinct difference between the students and the maturity level and their emotional intelligence. And it was kind of refreshing for me to make that jump. Not that it was bad working with undergrads, but I just really, uh, it resonated with me. I felt like I could connect with a little bit more mature student. In the 14 years since then, and certainly since COVID, we've seen kind of this massive impact on emotional health and being willing to have hard conversations, which are all great things. And it kind of makes me post hoc look back and be like, students probably wanted to have those conversations, but they didn't feel safe enough to do it. Mm-hmm. But the long and short of it is, I feel like my students today are 
asking questions that my undergrads probably used to ask 14 years ago. And I've seen this in my own daughter. She's a junior in college. Um, I I got my driver's license the day I turned 16. She right. waited almost two years. Like she she was not in a hurry to get this. And we see this with Gen Z is they are developing at a slower rate than Gen X did. And there's no shame. There's nothing wrong with that. We just have to recognize as parents and as as coaches or as teachers, we have to understand that I can't necessarily hold my grad students to the same level of expectation without some intermediate. So there's a gap that exists. And if I continue to just be grumpy old man and say, well, you're a grad student, you should know how to do this. And they haven't ever been formally provided with the tools and the skills and the feedback in order to do that. I'm really setting them up for failure. And that's on me. That's not, that's not a, a shortcoming of them. Uh, so we do have to kind of bring them alongside and, and, and help them. But what I probably want to relish most in my role I love my job, but it's the student that's graduated and they're three or four years into their career and considering a switch and they'll call me mm. and just seeking counsel. And that's where I feel like, wow, you know, maybe in that moment, I didn't really recognize that I was pouring into them, but now they recognize the value and, and, and they're, you know, they come to me for, for that counsel. And likewise, I have those people in my life that I do the same for, uh, on the, on the giving end, as opposed to the receiving. Uh, and that's when you really feel like maybe your, your efforts were, uh, you know, they had some impact. Yeah. I think one of the, I think one of the biggest stereotypes that still drives the industry that I'm in, as far as financial planning, financial advice goes, is that, I think most people's, most of America still has this stereotype that financial advisor equals, you know, number cruncher, somebody that picks stocks or bonds or manages a portfolio. And as I've grown and evolved in, in my firm, Tama, really the, the thing that I'm, I'm most unique or fitted for are these emotional conversations. And I often tell people when it comes to the financial planning that I do, most of it is the emotional side of financial planning. It's not the financial side of financial planning. Like financial planning, the finance side of it is table stakes. It's foundational what I do. It's a component of it. But I see time and time and year after year after year being in this, that going back to your point is like people get the most value of, of the relationship between my myself and my families I work with is that counsel and advisement. Like where should I go to school? Like, how should I help my daughter decide between Michigan or Michigan State? Um, you know, something like that. Or like, what am I going to do when I retire? I was just working on a, a white paper this week about um, this mental health challenge of deciding what, rather than deciding to retire from, what do I want to retire to? And I was listening to a, a podcast where a, a financial advisor in Finley, Ohio, ironically, where I got my MBA from, went through this tragic life transition where his mother committed suicide because she retired from this miserable job, but didn't have anything else to go to and became severely depressed. So, you know, that's, I think, that's, that's, I think, a one common bond and like listening to you, to you talk about this relationship with your students that I have with, with the families that I work with on, in the, in the wealth management space. Yeah, absolutely. So let me go back to, to that, that seminal moment that you made this decision when, when, when your daughter came walking up to you and you're like, well, when the heck did that happen? 
what were those conversations like, if you can recall, Toby, like with your wife and trying to make decisions like that? Because I think that's another, I think, area. Um, and obviously we're not, we're not therapists, but you know, we probably in both of our roles, we, we do a lot of therapy work, if you will. And one of those things is, you know, having people open up about the conversations with their significant others about these life-changing decisions, because it's not like you're going to make that decision on your own. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I started my first academic position, what they call ABD. So I was done with all my coursework. I was finishing my dissertation and I started at the University of Texas, El Paso as an assistant professor. So I spent three years there and the pay was okay. The hours were very flexible. That's one of the nice things about academia is you can kind of craft your schedule. But I just had this nagging, I just missed being a part of a team. And, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about previously, like my identity as an athlete in high school and briefly in college. You were a baseball player, right? I was a basketball player real briefly, not a great one. Okay. Uh, but I, I finally kind of gave up on dreams of playing and turned to sports medicine. It's like, okay, if I can't participate at this level as an athlete, maybe I can do it as, as a medical staff member. And so... I kind of had this little respite where I I chose to give up on that aspect. I was just teaching and I just missed it. I missed it. I missed it. My wife was kind of, she's always supportive and always willing to do whatever, but she's like, if you're not going to be happy until you're working with a team, go work with a team. And so we left El Paso and went to Lynchburg, Virginia, and I spent a season with the, the football team there, took a pretty big pay cut. The hours almost doubled. And when I was on the road and I come home and I see this. Lynchburg is Virginia Tech, right? uh, Liberty University. Liberty, okay. Yeah. So I just, I was really just kind of overcome with guilt because I missed this first. My family isn't benefiting from this financially. Maybe down the road, you know, you can view it as an investment. If I latch on with a a coaching staff that, that gets promoted or elevates out of there, then maybe I come along for the ride. But I just, I... I kept wrestling with this fact that you're not making a lot of money. You aren't there for your family. It's pretty selfish to keep pursuing this dream, this goal. So consider something else. So we left Liberty and that's when we went to the arena league team. And it was awesome. If if it would have been a year round gig, I would have probably stayed there the rest of my career. We go to Florida, Fort Myers and it's arena football. So all the players have day jobs. So they're working at Home Depot. I, I can't treat them. I can't work on them. So my wife, my then year old daughter, we go to the beach every morning and it's like, you know, work-life balance. It doesn't get better than that. Like <laughs> this is, this is incredible, but their season's only five months long and it's the pay's okay for that. But what do you do the rest of the year? Right. And so our conversations, I mean, in that moment, we're like, okay, this Liberty thing isn't working. I, I I can't persist in this line. We can go do this arena league team. When will we have a chance to just load up a, a small U-Haul trailer and move to Florida? The three of us, there's no school involved. There's no, you know, my wife was staying, a stay at home mom at the time. Um, we're like, we'll never have this opportunity, this freedom ever again. And, and in retrospect, when we look back at it, we're like, that was one of the the wildest, most irresponsible, magnificent <laughs> decisions we ever could have made. Because that that season in arena football, I still point to as one of the highlights. We didn't have our son at the time. I'm, I'm sad he didn't get to experiment or experience that. Our daughter was too young to remember it. But for a young family of three, 
man, it was fantastic. Every morning on the beach, go work, and and I'm I'm dealing with athletes who are hyper motivated. Like they're playing because they love it. They're not making millions of dollars. They're they're clinging to their own athletic dreams. Right. Super appreciative of everything I do as a healthcare provider. And it was just a fantastic season. And if we wouldn't have been brave and if we would have been responsible, we would have missed that. And so uh, I try to encourage my students, you know, life will find a way of loading your responsibilities wagon. When it's light, be agile, make those those big, crazy decisions as an investor, you know, as an investment advisor, as a financial planner, you know that. Like, you can be brave and bold when you're 21 years old. There's That's right. There's plenty of time to recoup when you're 50 and decide that I want to be brave and bold. That's a much different conversation. That that looks reckless. That looks irresponsible. But at 21 or 22, it's life skills. It's experience. Why wouldn't you do that? So, uh, I don't know. I mean, she's always been supportive. Another wife might have, uh, you know, pulled up the stakes, like, she, she often describes, especially early in our relationship, as a very roller coaster ride where you just never know, like, we're going to be here forever or we're leaving this afternoon. But I can't thank her enough for the support. And just she's always trusting. She said, you know, we're, we're Christians. And, and she she always said, uh, I believe that that my role is is to uh, to allow you to lead our family. But make a good choice <laughs> make it, <laughs> don't forget you have our lives in yeah. yes your our right. hands your hands yeah. Toby. yeah so I, I was i think you answered the question i was just going to ask but like how did how did you transition like that that um experience of taking that risk to your students or or the people that you work with and because i think that's sometimes you know, working in the, in, in while planning, everybody's different. Like everybody's got their own risk tolerance. And part of my job is, is understanding that and, and getting me getting comfortable with that and laying out options. So like somebody that's in their early twenties, that's really risk adverse. You know, that's, that's a lot of conversations about, Hey, there is a longer roadmap here. Like you can take more risk, but if it's not in their DNA, it, it it just doesn't work because it's not going to allow them to sleep at night. And that's, that's part of what I need to help people do is sleep at night. Just like if I've got that, that 50 year old that, you know, wants to invest in, in Bitcoin hundred percent or all tech, then it's like, okay, we, uh, we need to really think about this because this does not work. Yeah. I think sometimes that's a, a conscious choice and, and I certainly wouldn't shame anybody. Kind of like we were talking about previously, like, if you're risk averse and you don't want to make what the world might consider a reckless decision, then don't like, don't, we're not going to shame you. But sometimes those choices are made for us. I have a former student uh, just in the past few months, her position was eliminated at her college. And she messaged me like out of the blue school. She'd worked at for two or three years, eliminated her position, not for cause, no reason given. And she's without a job. Do you know anybody looking? And within a week, one of her uh, classmates in her cohort who worked in uh, Major League Baseball or within the professional baseball, he's in the minor leagues with the, the Red Sox organization, had helped her secure an interview with the Milwaukee Brewers organization. And then a week after that, she's a director of their uh, Dominican medical services. She's yeah. taking pictures on the beach in the Dominican Republic. 
she never would have jumped into that from her stable, safe job in Oklahoma. And in the moment when that was taken from her, she was crushed, probably. I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but anyone who who had a steady job and a mortgage and responsibilities, if that rug suddenly gets pulled, it's traumatic. It's, it's devastating. Tough. What are you going to do? And two weeks later, she's on a beach in the Dominican Republic working with aspiring professional athletes. So she wouldn't have chosen that, but it kind of got her hand was forced. But in the end, it ended up being what I think she would tell you was one of the bravest, most uh, transformative happenings in her young career. So sometimes we choose it. Sometimes it chooses us. But I think the important thing is to just understand, again, that identity understand who you are your your worth your value isn't tied to the title on your business card it's 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 linked to who you are fundamentally you know if you've prepared for that moment or not i think one of the biggest um, takeaways from people that go through a career transition especially because i deal with a lot of families that that do that are our age like between 40 and and you know 30 late 30s you know early 50s is you know, you're, you're wrapped up in your, your identity's a lot of wrapped up in this career. And then all of a sudden that, that career's gone, whether for cause or just downsizing, whatever it may be. And you go through what the, the seven stages of, of grief, if you will, I think it's seven stages. And it's, it's like, you have to go through all those, but in the 20 plus years, I've, I've, I've been in corporate or I've had my own firm or been a financial advisor. I can't think of anybody that's gone through that and not come out better on the other side. But I think one of the the fundamental factors that people miss going through that process is to reimagine or rethink what they really want life to be. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, 30 or 50, because there's still a long, even if you're 50, there's still a long way to go. Um, especially if you end up finding something you like, it kind of gets back to that that story we were talking about. What, are you retiring from something or re retiring to something? So I think I think that's a, a really interesting point that you made there. Um, yeah, on my show we we frequently talk about how the end of a chapter doesn't have to mean the end of the story, and and it's really it's a jumping off point. And it may be cliche, but you know the the size of the setback determines the volume of the comeback. Um, we can feel like our world just gets destroyed and leveled, but that may be a fresh opportunity that we wouldn't have had the bravery to pursue unprovoked. And sometimes, sometimes those unexpected or unintended transitions are, are the most beautiful. Well, ironically, that's actually where I wanted to go next is I, you mentioned it a few times and I, I definitely wanted to talk about it was your podcast titled becoming undone. So walk us through, what it's about and how did you end up creating that? Yeah. So this came about during COVID. We we pivoted quickly to all online and I I assembled a guest panel of former athletes for my behavioral health class. So these are second year masters of athletic training students, and we're talking about all things mental health and behavioral health. And so I assembled this panel of athletes I'd worked with in the past, and many of them had been retired from their sports for 10, 15 years. And I just wanted them to talk through, you know, having gone through that transition, what do you wish I, as your healthcare provider would have known about that season of your life? And, and granted the, the time, 
centrality of this is important too, because in the the late nineties, early two thousands, people didn't talk about their mental. Right. It was especially athletes. It's it's a badge of honor to just be tough and to grind through. And so to hear these athletes tell me what they wish I would have known and to see them tear up 10, 15, this is trauma left unpacked from decades of neglect or just, you know, they, it wasn't that they were damaged in any way. They just hadn't processed this grief of this transition. And I started talking with others, entrepreneurs who had pivoted mid-career. Artists, we see this, you know, Broadway performers don't usually retire on Broadway. They they reach their apex and then, you know, stuff happens. And it just became really clear to me that it's it, it's kind of fundamental to the human experience that stuff's going to happen that we wouldn't have picked. We're going to fall apart sometimes. You're going to lose your job. Your divorce might fall apart. Whatever that unexpected undoing is, you can either heal from it and, and leverage that towards success, or you can stew and marinate in it and it can make you miserable. And so during COVID, I really struggled. Full transparency, my mental health wasn't great. Uh, started getting more active in terms of training and trying to improve diet. I mean, there were many kind of active steps that I took and it made me realize that I still had tasks that I had not yet accomplished. So I went from being undone and falling apart at the seams to being undone where I've still got a task. There's stuff on the agenda that I haven't finished yet. Um, I think it's less, uh, who's the, the, the promotional speaker, less, more, less, less Brown. Yeah. Less Brown says, um, you know, you, you have these ghosts of these assignments that were assigned to you <laughs> sitting around your bed and they're angry because they were assigned to you, you and you didn't do something with them. And it just, it compelled me. And I thought, we need to normalize this. We need to talk about these struggles and realize that I'm not alone in this. Um, it, 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 may, it may be my fault that I came undone. It may not have anything to do with choices I made. But where I go from there is a thousand percent up to me. And so we're now, uh, I think I've recorded 47 episodes, uh, talked with former Olympic athletes, NFL athletes, artists, entrepreneurs. And despite the context and the differences in what these people have been through career-wise, there's a commonality in the theme. And, and successful people don't let setback be the reason why they don't keep going. And so that's, that's kind of where, where we started. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, like, so you you are quickly approaching like 50 episodes and, and having all these great conversations, you know, if there's a, you know, one or two like key takeaways that, that, that are resonant amongst those, those conversations that you could share with, with our audience. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is we get so caught up in the day to day. And sometimes that to-do list is, is almost it's a bear. Like, it is. And, and we, we lose sight of the bigger picture. And for a, a lot of, especially the athletes, I'd say probably two to one, my guests have, have pre predominantly been competitive athletes, college, professional. They said, you know, I was so concerned with the next championship or winning the next game or whatever, whatever that next goal, that next thing on the to-do list was, that they didn't take the time to appreciate the moment. Uh, in our house, we call it savoring the now. If I'm so worried about what I'm doing tomorrow that I don't savor the now, I don't let the flavor of today 
really settle with me. Um, and I, you kind of lose sight of why you're doing it, right? It, it just becomes almost like a sentence more than a purpose. And so uh, I think, you know, the old phrase, taking time to smell the roses, it, it's old, but it's accurate. Um, for me, I started parking further away. Uh, so there's a physical benefit to that, but I listen to a podcast. There's a little bridge where I walk. There's a little playa lake. And I tried to turn my walk in and out of the office every day into a moment where I can really savor the work that I have to do. Whereas if I just park as close as I can, run into the building and get started, I'll still probably get the same amount done, but my mental health is different. So I always tell this to my students. What works for me may or may not work for you, but you owe it to yourself to discover what works best for you. If, if you write best in a dark, indirectly lit room, then put yourself in a dark, indirectly lit room. If you work best under fluorescence, do that, whatever. But you owe it to yourself to be scientific about it. Is my productivity better when I do this or when I write here or when when I study in this place or when I'm in groups versus alone? Um, it's It's... An unexamined life is un, is not worth living, right? We owe it to ourselves to do a little evidence-based practice, figure out what works, and then lean into that as hard as you can. And then revisit it from time to time because it changes. You know, you got three plus one in the house. What worked for you 20 years ago probably doesn't work well for you today. No. And, and it might not be the same six months from now. And that's okay. Uh, it, it's really just recognizing that there's a process to it. Yeah. And I think, I don't, I think I mentioned this to you before we actually hit the record button is like, I feel like we go through so many life transitions year to year now, especially like my triplets transitioned from elementary school to middle school last year. Now this year, my plus one McKenzie transitions from elementary school to, to middle school. And it's like every year I think is a different transition in, in, some things are easier and some things are harder. I get that question all the time about, oh my God, like what's it like to raise triplets? And, you know, Teresa and I, you know, have basically had the same motto since day one. It's like, we try to take things one day at a time and there's days that are really great and there's days that are not so great. And I think one of the things that I've struggled with as far as like my own mental health is giving myself the grace to, to, to realize I, I'm not going to be a perfect dad or advisor or husband, you know, whatever, a friend every, every day. And to, to allow myself that, okay, we all have bad days. And I just, when you were, when you were talking, I was thinking, I don't know if you watched Ted Lasso or not, but obviously it just came to a close. And, you know, one of the last uh, uh, scenes was they were talking about perfection and, the one assistant soccer coach made the point perfection perfection is boring and that that that's really resonated with me i i've watched that season finale now two and a half times it's just it's it's i think it was just a a, a well done show especially when people needed it most during you know this this trials and tribulations of of covid and going through that yeah no i i, I it was a much needed and welcome and i haven't I haven't uh, full transparency i have not watched it's on my list of things i need to do but everyone that i've heard talk about it is it's this refreshing change of pace uh, i'm a big david goggins fan and so you know leadership david goggins style is is 
is very kind of confrontational and, uh, you know, embracing who you are and throwing out and discarding who you're not. And, um, I feel like there, there's, there's a measure of humanity and softness in the Ted Lasso that is not in some of our, our, our you know, highly esteemed motivational leaders. And, and just kind of, it goes back to what we were talking about previously. Like it, it takes all types. And in, in one season of my life where I'm lacking discipline, a David Goggins book is the kick in the pants that I need. Yep. In other seasons where, you know, just getting out of bed in the morning and showing up for work is a monumental task, then maybe a little softer hand is necessary. And, and I always tell my students, sometimes you need a kick in the pants and sometimes you need a hug around the neck. Right. I have to be wise enough and astute enough to know which one, which one to give. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel the same way with, with, uh, with my own kids and, and the families I work with. It's like, you, you need to know like when, when to use the carrot, when to use the stick. Yeah. Um, there's also like when you were, when you were talking about, you know, one of the examples you gave with, with the athletes about, you know, it was so in the moment that I never really stopped back to, to think about it. I have to turn because there's a there's a book or poem by Robert Hastings. It's called The Station. I'll link to it in my show notes um, because I I have that PDF on uh, on our website somewhere. But that's the basic gist of it. It's like you you have these big goals and dreams ahead of you, and you're working towards it, working, and you don't realize that the the joy is in the journey, not the destination. So yeah, David Brooks has a, a book, uh, the second mountain where he talks about the first mountain in our life is success and yeah. we, we pursue it with all of our might. And that was me. I was chasing that business card. I, I, I interned with the, uh, at the time, the Oakland Raiders, now the Las Vegas Raiders and the thought of working in the NFL, that was success. Like I, I could tell you I'm good enough, pat myself on the back. I'm an NFL athletic trainer. And that left me unsatisfied. Like I, I didn't achieve that level, but I, I, I achieved what I felt like, you know, if I get there, then I'll be happy. And then I got there and I wasn't happy. The second mountain is significance. It's not about me. It's about the people around me. What legacy am I going to make? Uh, you know, what, what lessons have I taught my son that will help him as he pursues his athletic and eventually professional dreams? Likewise, my daughter. Um, so si significance is not about self. It's it's about the the impact that I have on those around me, and it's more fulfilling. I, you know, hearing stories of where my students have gone, oddly enough, gives me more satisfaction than whatever business card I ever. Uh, and, and that's kind of what leadership is. I hope is that I, I'm more others focused and, and less concerned with self. Well, Toby, I could uh, I could keep you here for probably another hour or so, but I know uh, I know we both have a finite period of time. So let me let me come to my closing question that I ask um, all my guests, the majority. Um, what is the best thing about being a parent? That's a great question, and it relates right. Back, excuse me, right back to what we were talking about. Um, it's ever changing. And my relationship with my daughter, who's a junior in college, is different than it's ever been. And that makes it messy. That makes it hard to navigate sometimes, but it makes it beautiful. Likewise, my son, he's a, a junior, soon to be senior in high school. And 
you know, I see my Facebook memories of five years ago and it's an entirely different human being. Like he doesn't look the same. He doesn't talk the same. His interests have changed. And uh, it's on me to discover that ever evolving creature so that, you know, if, if, if I go to the grocery store and I don't know what your favorite snack food is, or if I don't know what movie you're into, like, I feel like as your dad, I need to, to try to keep up with, with who you are and who, who, who you're becoming. And so I'm in, in the, the later transition, you know, you're, you're in the throes of, of the early parenting. I'm on the trail end where we're thinking about selling our house, you know, a smaller yard. We don't need the school district anymore. Like our son is, he's going to walk across the high school graduation stage in 10 months. And that's terrifying, but safer than now. Uh, we, we are in the throes of encountering a lot of lasts and the difference between the first and the last, you can't overstate. I, I can tell you exactly when the first time my daughter walked to me, I can tell you the first time my son and I played catch. But I don't know the last, so that means I better savor it because maybe this is the last softball game my daughter and I ever go to. She goes on to other things, or this is, you know, those lasts, they kind of whisper away. The first shout themselves at you as a parent, and I just want to be there, get my head out of my phone and enjoy the moment. Well, that's that's the reason why I love asking that question is because in the two and a half years, no one's ever given me the same answer, and it's... I. I, I just think it's uh I think what how you put it so poetically, if you will, it was is is incredible. Uh and uh that'll be one of my big takeaways from this conversation. So Thanks, Becoming Undone is is Toby's podcast. We'll make sure we put um uh links in the show notes to that and your website as well. Uh, because I know you do some uh public speaking as well. But uh I'm I'm quite positive that this probably won't be our last conversation, uh, Toby. And I'll I'll be looking forward to the next one to come. Absolutely. I really appreciate your platform and your work. Uh, I think it's, it's important uh, examining uh, these transitions and, and normalizing, recognizing that we can feel so alone and beat ourselves down if we feel like we're the only person in the world going through this. So normalizing that process and, and giving yourself grace and, like you said, turning off the highlight reel that is social media and giving yourself permission to to, to just parent and sometimes that looks great and sometimes it's kind of messy yeah it's messy for sure all right well thank you very much toby i appreciate it thanks paul have a great one so were you able to find that theme i talked about in the opening that theme that i thought repeated over and over during my conversation with toby if you didn't let me spell it out for you as our relationships with our children evolve the importance of staying connected with their interests and savoring those precious last each year as they grow older are priceless. That's my biggest takeaway from my conversation with Toby. And I'm trying to implement that in my life with my triplets plus one. I think the other key takeaway that I want to point out is just like when athletes experience trauma, grief, injury, there can be a lot of neglected emotions that are left unpacked. And I think making a career pivot mid-career can be an unexpected setback, just like that athlete. But it's important to normalize the transition, talking about the struggles and not letting those setbacks hinder our future success. If you've enjoyed this conversation, could you do me a favor 
you know anyone else who would enjoy these types of conversations where we talk about the intersections of our emotional and financial lives? Because if you do, it's actually going to help both of us. Could you share this conversation with someone? They will think you're great because you just gave them this terrific podcast and it helps me grow my audience. Or you can tell them to go to tamacapital.com. That's all for this week. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.